to another exciting episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shang. Along with me is my co-host, Mr. Paul Spataro. Thank goodness Rob's not here. How you doing, Paul? Hey, I'm kind of sad that Rob's not here, but uh, I'm doing good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm not sad. It's a nice, pleasant change. Well, where else, well, am, I gonna get, where else am I going to get all my Bob Dylan and MASH quotes from? <laughs> the internet? Paul and I have been talking about getting together now for about six months, I would say, saying we should get together and do something. Paul's been kind enough to write in that he's listened to our show. I, I, I know Paul's part of the Two True Freaks Network. Beyond that, I don't even know what show he's on. Um, just kidding. Paul is a stalwart of the Back to the Bins podcast, the Listen to the Prophets podcast. Uh, what else? Do you, do you appear on other shows as well? Because I, I begin to lose track after At, at this point, my those are the only two regular uh, gigs I have. Everything else is just the occasional guest appearance such as this when people are foolish and, I mean, kind enough to invite me on. <laughs> well, Paul is one of the nicest guys in the podcasting world, and he has this amazing voice that just makes you sick and jealous because it's got the, the depth, it's got the, the gravitas, and then you got this a little bit of a cool, you know, what I call a Yankee accent, and uh, it, just, it all works, man. I hate you for it. Oh, and my head is getting so freaking big. <laughs> Getting big? Whatever. Anyway, so <laughs> because Rob bailed on us, Paul and I, uh, we brainstormed a couple of ideas, and we came up with something that we think is kind of interesting. It sort of fits nicely in both of our wheelhouses. I'm mainly a DC guy. Paul is more predominantly a Marvel guy. And what is a good crossover between Marvel and DC, Paul? Oh, I was thinking that maybe the Squadron Sinister and the and the uh, JLA would be a good crossover. It's a very nice fit, isn't it? It's a really nice fit. Speaking of which, before we go much further, I'm going to take a moment to thank our sponsor. Folks, the Firewater Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. 
InStock Trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. And I promise it's all going to come back to Squadron Supreme right about now. Folks, if you head over to InStock Trades, at least the time of this recording, you can pick up the Squadron Supreme trade paperback. It's a new printing, uh, and this is collects the 12-issue miniseries from 1985, plus the Captain America issue crossover. Well, it has 352 pages! Written by the amazing and, uh, and unfortunately passed away Mark Grunewald. It's got art by Bob Hall and other folks. It's got a great Alex Ross cover. It normally retails for $34.99. $34.99 because it's 350 pages. You can get it on in stock trades for 45% off, which is $19.24. Paul, do you think people should buy this trade paper? Oh, absolutely. They should buy it. It's a great story. Oh my gosh, it's so good. So folks, head over to InStock Trades, pick this up right away. Squadron Supreme, trade paperback, new printing. Uh, again, they are that your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and all your various needs. So our thanks to their sponsorship. Now, I actually have the trade. I have the first printing of the trade. Do you remember why the first printing of the trade is sort of famous? Does that not have Mark Grunewald's blood in it? It has Mark Grunewald's blood in it. Whew. Wow. Or is it, wait, is it his blood or his ashes? I can't remember. Oh, I, you know what? I think it's his ashes. Yeah, the blood was the, the, the blood was the uh, the kiss. Uh, oh, it was the kiss oh. thing, wasn't it? That's right. That was the kiss. That's yeah, right. this no, yeah, this had his ashes in it, which is yes. And Catherine Grunewald does the foreword. That's right. Which which says how much this the legacy of this meant to his family. Mm-hmm. That that they thought it was significant enough to to you know that it would pay tribute to him to have him be a part of the book. Yeah. And folks, as we, as we talk about Squadron Supreme throughout this, I think you're going to get a sense for how much Paul and I hold this comic in high regard. So, and, and why Grunewald should be celebrated for it as well. Well, Paul, as the guest, uh, first off, why don't you tell folks at home, since we, since I've got this opportunity here, I'm going to throw this question at you. Didn't even tell you in advance, but why don't you tell the folks at home how you got into comic books? What got you into the world of comics? Well, when I was, you know, really a young lad, I, I was reading books periodically. And I enjoyed them, but I ne- and, you know nothing really clicked until I don't know why. But when I had Spider-Man number one thirty-one, which is the the famous cover of uh, Ant-Man Doc Ock getting married, and and <laughs> and, and, and the, the priest is saying, "With this ring, I the web." Because Spider-Man <laughs> shooting the web into the Bible for for whatever reason, I had I got that book, and immediately I decided I needed to have every book I could get. And I needed to save every book I could get. <laughs> and, and I've been addicted ever since. And there have been periodically times where I've stopped purchasing books, but I've never, ever been able to totally extricate myself. And I always say I'm, I'm a recovering comic collector uh, as opposed to a former com- former comic collector because I'm an addict. There's no question about it. <laughs> so do you find yourself buying a lot of new comics or are you mainly still no. trolling the old stuff? No, I, 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 I've mostly weaned myself of the new stuff. I'll buy new stuff, but I'll buy new stuff when it's no longer new and, and I can get it at a, at an extreme discount. Gotcha. Uh, I, okay. I go to the Professor Allen School of Collecting and, <laughs> and when the local store runs a, you know, a, a real serious sale and the books are, you know, 50 cents each, 25 cents each, then I'll just spend a ton of money to buy a, a, a you know, a whole lot of them. But I just can't justify four dollars for 
the way books are written these days. Or and even with the markdown to three three dollars that's coming up with the DC reboot, it's still hard to justify the spending that kind of money on them. I think I've sort of followed in your footsteps there because for the most part, there, there's only a, a very small handful of new comics I'm getting. Uh, most of which are not even from Marvel and DC. They're, they're they're licensed books like Doctor Who and Back to the Future and stuff like that. So most of the comics I find myself buying nowadays are back issues because it's it's sort of I don't know if you remember NBC had a slogan back in I don't know the 80s or the 90s it was like if you haven't seen it it's new to you yeah kind of philosophy of, of old comics I'm like well you know what the 80s is sort of my my sweet spot for comics and there's so many comics in the 80s I haven't read and I'll pick up you know a couple years ago I picked up the Power of the Atom miniseries for the first time and I was like wow this is great I've never read it it's very exciting right now I've been picking up the Batman uh, Superman Generations and Hawk and Dove and mm. all this crazy stuff and because I never read it it's all new it's a blast I love it yeah. and, and sometimes I feel a little guilty that I'm not supporting the industry the industry that I've gotten so much pleasure from over the years yeah. but I don't feel like the industry is supporting me <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> you know I, I don't feel like they worry about the individual readers I don't think that they really make an effort to accommodate the needs of the readers or the desires of the readers I think they just kind of go about their business and try and find ways to milk every last dime out of everybody that they can so I, I, I try not to worry about that and I've long since come to the conclusion that if I Started today, I couldn't read all the back issues that I want to before I die anyway. So <laughs> if they stop publishing tomorrow, it's not going to stop my love of this, of the artwork and the, you know, of, of the art form. I totally understand. Now and I, it, I'm I, just, I was just going to say you, you had your, you know, your whole, uh, your whole speech that time about, uh, you know, finding your, uh, you, I, I tried to remember what you called it. Find your, find your, find your joy, find your joy. And, and that is, you know, for me, that, that's very easy is, you know, I'm, I'm mostly a Marvel Bronze Age guy. Okay. So, Silver Age, I'm pretty strong on also. I could sit and read, you know, read and reread Marvel Bronze and Silver Age books, like I said, until I die and I'll be satisfied that that's good enough. That doesn't mean I don't enjoy other things. I like a lot of DC stuff and I like some indie stuff, but my sweet spot is Marvel, Silver and Bronze Age. So when do you consider the Bronze Age over? Sorry, curiosity. Uh, about the mid-1980s. Okay. All right. The reason I ask is because my Marvel sweet spot is probably about 1982 to probably even into the 90s. Probably like 95, I would say. You know, That's sort of where I love that Marvel era. And even though, again, I, I still consider myself a DC guy, I've read so many more Marvel, Marvel comics in the last couple of years than I have DC. In fact, uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of the Marvel Digital Unlimited platform mm -hmm. because I do feel like I'm contributing to the industry. Marvel's getting, whatever, 70 bucks out of me a year. And I've read something like, I don't know, 200 comics on the platform this past year. It's been wonderful. And it's stuff that I wouldn't expect myself to, to start reading, just whether it be even some kids' comics, like kids' Spider-Man comics. Or I just today I was reading Daredevil Yellow, which is those Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale color books. And uh, it's a great five-issue miniseries about Daredevil. And it's just wonderful. And there's so many comics that I've gotten so much joy out of. And the Marvel platform, it, it, it helped me finally accept digital comics as well. I wasn't a, a fan of digital comics until I did this. And it's just a blast. I love it. I think it's fantastic. I wish DC would get one because, man, I would eat, the, eat that up with a spoon. Yeah, I, I, I'm surprised that they haven't at this point. It, it really seems like such a no-brainer. But I, I I don't know what the profit uh, picture looks like on that either, though. I, you know, I, everyone, like anyone that's got any sort of background in business I've, that I bump into, is we've had that exact conversation. Because you sit there and go, okay, if you got $70 on each person, and you see you get a million subscribers, you know, you know, what's it all worth? 
what's the lifetime value of the customer? You know, are they continuing to buy trade paperbacks or are all they doing is using the, the unlimited platform? And it makes you wonder, you know, and, and maybe DC does have the better financial model by selling the comics individually digitally. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either, but I, but I would think the costs of the platform to have, put Marvel Digital out there for you is probably very low. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Well, once it's built, you know, it's for the most part operating on itself. So, so, so then you compare that to actually having to print books, ship them, get mm-hmm. them into people's hands, and then split the profit with whoever your retailers are. Exactly. And Diamond distributing. Yep. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you ever get Marvel Digital Limited, one thing you should do is uh, when they when they push out updates, you know, like do you have a smartphone? I assume you have some sort yes. of smartphone. Okay, and you know when they the updates come out, they always tell you what the you, know, you can click and you can read what's in the updates, and no one ever reads what's in the updates for whatever program you have. You know, let's say Facebook tells you, well, we fixed this bug and this bug and this bug. No one cares. The Marvel one. Take time to read them. Like, as you read, it's like, we fixed this bug, we fixed this bug, and Hydra infiltrated our comic library and did this horrible <laughs> thing, and we've stopped the agents of AIM, and it's like, what? What am I reading? It's hysterical. It's, it's they're, they're channeling 1970s Stan Lee. Oh, man, they must be. That's true. That That's a good analogy. <laughs> well, let's talk some classic comics here. Let's talk some Silver Age, Bronze Age goodness here with Squadron Supreme, who are, obviously, if you don't know, folks, they are Justice League of America analogs. Um, Paul, do you want to start us off by telling us a little bit of history where they came from? Yeah, I'm gonna, and I'm going to start off with giving a little personal history on this because around 1975, I would guess, uh, my mom had a friend who was over for a cup of coffee, and I came home from school, and this was, you know, when I was really, really starting to get into comics big time. Her friend said to me, you know, she lived like two blocks away. She says, "Tomorrow afternoon after school, stop, stop by the house. I have something for you." So I stopped by. She has, she has a Thank son. Thank you, Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, no, she was not trying to seduce me. But she, she had a son who was probably about four or five years older than me. And she just I, I stopped by and she just reached over and handed me a box of comics. Oh, that's great. This, Like I said, this was probably around 1975. And she handed me a bunch of bo- comics from like around between 1968 and 1970. And included in them was Avengers 69, 70, 71, and 72. Oh, so that was my first exposure to this particular uh, story, where where Roy Thomas and Sal Buscema introduced the Squadron Sinister to the world, and they were, as you say, they're a Justice League analog, but they were presented that it was uh, Kang had fought the Avengers with the Growing Man and captured them, and wanted to, wanted them to act as his champions against the Grandmaster. And actually, the Grandmaster not only put him up against Squadron Sinister, but the issue following that, he put them up against what Roy Thomas would eventually turn into the Invaders. It was Captain oh, America, wow. Submariner, and the Human Torch back in the 1940s. But to go back, they, the Squadron Sinister, as presented in that first issue, were Dr. Spectrum, Hyperion, Nighthawk, and Wizard. So Dr. Spectrum had a... Uh, had had basically a big jewel. I think it was green, if I remember right. But uh, the the power prism. Yeah, yeah, the power prism. So he was effectively a Green Lantern uh, analog. Hyperion, although really didn't look anything like Superman, he was the Superman analog wearing a uh, hiatal hernia belt. <laughs> and, uh, Night Nighthawk was probably the most clear connection because he had a little bit of a Batman look about him. Mm-hmm. And then you had the Wizard, who was obviously the Flash. Such a terrible name. Such a terrible name. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they appeared, and then Roy apparently, uh, you know, rethought this very quickly because then 
just less than two years later in Avengers 85 and 86, he introduced the Squadron Supreme as opposed to the Squadron Sinister, which is basically the same characters, but just from another alternate Earth where they were good guys. Right, exactly. (laughs) Because Marvel's parallel worlds aren't confusing enough. From there, there's an issue of Daredevil where Nighthawk appeared. Uh, and it, it's a fairly famous cover. It's kind of Nighthawk is standing on a, on a platform in a big crowd and Daredevil's off to the side down low. And, you know, Nighthawk is being declared basically the new hero. I got to find that because I'm a huge Daredevil fan. And now I haven't read very many of his Silver Age adventures other than like the first wave, like the first year or so. I mean, Batman and Daredevil are a perfect pairing. I mean, they, they, just, they make perfect sense. So a, a Daredevil and Nighthawk story has got to be great. It was it was okay. <laughs> okay, all right. Then my f- real first experience with the team, because it was among one of the first books I had ever bought, was in the Defenders issues. I think it was thirteen and fourteen, where, where the Squadron Sinister was selling out Earth to a character called Nebulon. Okay. And Nighthawk in that then turned around and betrayed them, and then became a member of the Defenders, and he became a long-standing member of the Defenders. Oh, so the, forward. so wait a minute. So the Nighthawk in the Defenders was actually from the Squadron Sinister. Yes, I never knew that. I always assumed he was a Squadron Supreme version, just a parallel one. Ah, okay. Yeah, there was, it was it was a weird story where uh, this the character of Nebulon made himself look like this tall, glowing Adonis of a man, but really was kind of a giant earthworm slash slug type thing that, that <laughs> needed to live in a wet environment. So he was having the uh, the Squadron Sinister melt the polar ice caps to oh turn the, the Earth into a habitable place for him. <laughs> now, it's, it's fair to say in those early appearances of the Squadron Supreme, they sort of got a rep for whenever they showed up, they were always either being mind-controlled or being manipulated by somebody else. Is that fair to say? I would say yes. <laughs> I still remember when... Well, this is in the in the 2000s when uh, the Squadron Supreme ended up on our quote unquote our Marvel Earth, which is, I guess is 616, and they showed up at Hawkeye. This is when it was being written by Kurt Busiek, and Hawkeye's just out of the blue. He sees the Squadron Supreme show up, and he's like, five will get you ten. They're being mentally controlled." <laughs> it's just it was. I fell over laughing so hard because it's always the case with these guys. Yeah, it it really is. The the next appearance I remember of them after the one I mentioned was then they came back in the Avengers in around the mid-140s, and they were basically the tools of the Roxxon Corporation, and it was uh, you know a whole serpent serpent crown thing going oh, yeah, on. yeah. <laughs> but eventually, the, I mean, there, there were other appearances that I'm missing, but then, you know, the, the big appearance was when they finally got their Maxi series. And, and it's fair to say, too, the reason they were always mind control, I mean, really what it was, it was just a plot device to give it a chance for the Avengers to fight the Justice League, is what you're really looking for. Yeah, that, that was always, you know, the end result. Yep. Now, the flip side of this, and I'll just mention this briefly, and this is actually going to come up again, uh, depending on when this comes out versus the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast, Mike Bailey and I actually talk about the same thing, but the Champions of Angor were a group of characters in the DC universe of, of books who appeared in Justice League of America number 87. They got a whole whopping six pages in this comic, by the way. And they were Avengers analogs. So this was, uh, Justice League of America number 87 in February 1971, which was the same, one of the same months, I don't remember which, what one, but one of the same months that the Squadron Supreme or Squadron Sinister were appearing in Avengers. It was sort of a secret crossover that they had planned. In one month you'd get DC analogs on a Marvel book and you would get the Marvel analogs on a DC book. So it was kind of a nice little 
quote unquote crossover. And they had the, the four characters which were, let me see if I can get their names here. This is the worst. Wand, I'm going to say Wan Jinnah, just to try and keep it as clean as possible. Who was essentially an equivalent of <laughs> Thor. Uh, Silver Sorceress, which was equivalent of Scarlet Witch. And you had Blue Jay, who was a, an equivalent of Ant-Man. And you had Jack B. Quick, who later on was called Captain Speed, who was an analog of Quicksilver. Okay, same, same basic character, but according to the Wikipedia entry, Blue Jay is a pastiche of Yellow Jacket. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you are absolutely correct. Because there was, yeah, that would make more sense. Flight, the whole thing, that would make a lot more sense. Yep. Sorry, Mr. Pym. All your different identities and fractured personalities. I can't keep up with them. <laughs> yeah, just go over and smack your wife. It's okay. Oh, God. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Oh. No, I, I, I'm actually not a fan of that, that take on the yellow jacket. And I don't want to harp on this too much. It's come up on a lot of different podcasts. People talk about it. I mean, it's, it absolutely is, is horrible that it happened, but it's a one-off story that a writer didn't realize at the time would then hang around Hank Pym's neck for the rest of creation. He he will never be able to shake that off now. When it was just supposed to be a one-off story, they didn't realize they were changing the character forever when they did that. And it's unfortunate because he's a great character. Ugh, yeah, I, I think, you know, the fact that they make him so troubled and, like you said, the fractured uh, psyche, I think all of that makes for a, a really good three-dimensional or, or four-dimensional character. <laughs> the problem is when, when you factor in the hitting your wife part, it makes him a hard person to root for. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's that. that's the negative there. So you know they they really should retcon that to him having been mind controlled or something because they would they would instead of they just try and sweep it under the rug. Well, I think they they retconned it to it was one of his fractured personalities or something. But either way, it's what happens. And, and I want to say I think it was Mike Gillis who's a, a guy. If I'm wrong, I, I forgive me guys, but I think Mike Gillis was the one who basically said what happens is. Every time a new writer comes on the book and wants to do something with Hank Pym, they have to apologize all over again for that incident to try and move the character forward. And again, it, it's, it's never going to be able to shake it. And uh, that's why they couldn't make the Ant-Man movie about Hank Pym. They had to make it about Scott Lang, and uh, which was still I actually probably worked out for the better because Scott Lang is, is a fascinating character with a redemption story. And actually the way they portrayed Hank Pym in that movie was awesome. That was a great movie, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. my gosh, it was so good. Yeah, and and like I said, I really liked the way they, they portrayed Hank Pym. I only, I only wish that Michael Douglas could do the you know whatever it is the CGI young filming to do a prequel. God, that scene is the most amazing CGI in any of the Avengers films. Just that you know two minute scene with him like he looked in 1989 is stunning, absolutely mm -hmm. stunning. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well let's 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 close out the Champions of Angor here again. They got a whopping six pages, so I'm sure I'm sure the guys in the Marvel side when they put the squadron in there in their side of the book and they look at the DC half and go six pages. Seriously, that's all you gave us? They were probably pretty unhappy with that quote unquote crossover. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert! All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert! Shields up. What You're Starfleet officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. It's what's all to become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet. One of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. 
only on TrueFreaks.com. So let's talk about the character. Right off the bat, you know, your analogs. Hyperion versus Superman. What's your feeling on Hyperion? I don't know if you're familiar with... They made his origin story that he was from a microscopic planet that was destroyed when humans learned how to split an atom. Oh, wow. That's and, a wild retcon. Okay. So he's the he's the last survivor of that planet and was enlarged to, you know, our size by the Grandmaster. It's interesting. They, they've toyed around with his origin a few times because, you know, originally he was basically like Superman. He was the last, you know, survivor of a dying planet. And then at some point they made him a, a, a last surviving Eternal. And maybe oh, that's can, okay. well, that's what I've read. I mean, this is just Wikipedia scrolling tonight, folks. So forgive me. And they they did basically indicate there's been seven different distinct incarnations of Hyperion that have been used in various comics, and we're not even touching the Straczynski stuff that was where, done. Where they recently. tried to make him much, much more like Superman. Yeah, and and folks, I I haven't read enough of Supreme Power followed by um, uh, Squadron Supreme to really judge its merits. I mean, I've heard it's very, very good. It's it's very dystopian Justice League stories. I, I'm looking right now at two hardcovers I own of Supreme Power, Volume One and Two, and I've had them for like a year and a half, and I haven't. Even cracked them open yet so I, I feel guilty i should read them but <laughs> yeah in, in the in the straczynski run at least what i read of it he tried to make it much more of a parallel to the superman origin story only instead of being discovered by the kents he was discovered by the government who set him up with a faux kent family they were basically government a- agents pretending to be farmers to raise him i've actually read number one so i remember that now it was sort of like a truman show thing almost yes yes yeah. exactly so i mean that was an interesting take on it but i don't know i i i kind of prefer the old i i, I go more with the squadron sinister version of him for whatever <laughs> reason so it's uh you know if we talk about his powers and stuff, hang on, I, I've jotted some of this stuff down. I mean, it's it is pretty much right up there with Superman. You know, he's um forgive me here as I scroll. Yeah, in this now this version here is all based on Eternals. It says like he has Eternal physiology, which basically means you know he collects cosmic radiation, kind of the same as the sun. That's where his powers come from. He's got superhuman strength, superhuman speed, flight, stamina. Invulnerability, agility, you know, all this should sound pretty darn familiar with a certain man of steel. Essentially, yeah, he breaks, he, he breaks it down. He is, he is very much a Superman equivalent. And he, of course, he's always the leader. I love how you mentioned he's got the wrestling belt thing. It's sort of like the one Dr. Fate wears too. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. But so, it looks, it, it looks so much less weird on Dr. Fate. <laughs> I have to agree with you. I have to agree with you. Now, they they did at least make Hyperion's costume red instead of blue to at least distinguish him from Superman a little bit. Oh, and he's got, you know, ginger hair. That's true. And he, he, he was always drawn as a little bit more beefy than Superman also. Yeah. I, I like Hyperion. I don't remember him having a lot of personality, though. You know, even in the Mark Gruenwald story, I have to go back and reread it. I've actually got the trade out here as we're talking. I'm going to reread it hopefully soon. But he, he was always just kind of, you know, the heroic guy is what mm-hmm. I seem to recall. Or, or the very, very angry guy in the sinister version. Okay. Very good. All right. So Nighthawk, that is our Batman equivalent. Interesting character there. How much do you remember about what he would do, what he went on to do in his private life? Well, he was, I remember, you know, he was Kyle Richmond and he was, mm-hmm. he was independently wealthy, just like, uh, Bruce Wayne. And you? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I remember his, his powers were night based. He actually, when the sun would go down, he would be stronger and more agile. Yep. But I, I don't really remember a heck of a lot more about his private life other than okay. that he was Kyle Richmond and that he was wealthy. 
where I was going was uh, he he became president. He became president of the United States. That's in the Squadron Supreme world. Yes, sorry, yeah, in their in their universe, in their parallel. What I think it's Universe Seven One Two or something like that. But yeah, he actually became president of their country in uh, in that book. And then you know he's still operating as Nighthawk though from time to time. So that's something that's a dynamic you don't see very often where the president, other than DC's comic Teenage Prez, where the president of the United States actually jumps out there and beats up some baddies. Unusual. Yes, very. But I always liked Kyle Richman. I, 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 I kind of liked his look better than Batman's because I like that you could see more of his face. I thought the open mask was pretty cool, Did, at least in the uh, Grunewald version. I, he, I can't remember if his costume was different before that. I was going to say, well, if you remember the original look, he had kind of like a uh, like a pale blue bodysuit. But then he had the very dark cowl and cape with, with kind of the orange beak. Oh, that's right. And then when he went on the Defenders, that changed. He got the navy blue costume with the red cape, no more beak, and kind of had like like yellow feathers up by his eyes. Yeah, I'm looking at that now. Yeah. The, the, that was more the classic Nighthawk look that stayed around for quite a while. That was the red – and the red cape almost functioned like wings. The way it well, went, I think oh, he wow. had a jetpack underneath him. Well, of course. Who wouldn't, right? I'd have a jetpack underneath there. Okay. If, I, if I could afford a jetpack. <laughs> and the, see, the version that comes to my mind, though, is the Grunewald miniseries one, which is all dark blue and a, a very large black, you know, hawk sort of emblem on his chest that goes all the way across and down his legs and stuff. And he had sort of the, almost like the Batman pointed ears and the black cape. I mean, he looked very much like Batman at that mm-hmm. point. They, they were trying to make him look more and more like Batman, except, again, it had the, the, the mask was more open in the face. It was kind. It was kind of a uh, an amalgam between the original costume and Batman. Yeah, that's fair to say. So, how long was he in Defenders? Oh, quite a while. He he came on, like I said, in issue thirteen, and I think he was on pretty much through the run, which went up one hundred and fifty issues, maybe. Oh wow. Okay. Now he would be interesting to see go up against Batman again. Just you know his 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 abilities, his tactician skills, all these different things that Night, Nighthawk was good at. I think you know Hyperion versus Superman would just be a big slugfest, but Nighthawk versus Batman actually would probably be a pretty interesting battle. Well, as as they developed his character more, they would differentiate him more from Batman. You know, they made him more of his own character in the Defenders. And he had more insecurities than Batman did. He wasn't quite the tactician. Oh. So I, I think ultimately Batman would defeat him. Okay. Well, that's a shame. I like it when Batman gets put in his place. Because, yeah, I mean, DC treats Batman as the Bat God nowadays, you know? Yeah. No, I, we, we've, we've, we've just done, recorded two episodes of Ben's where we are talking Batman Superman. Oh, really? And, okay. And I take some offense with the fact that every time they fight each other, the writers want to have Batman win. Of course. When when the reality of it is super speed, you know, super speed and laser vision. <laughs> I, I, can, I can do things faster than you could possibly react to them. And if you have kryptonite, I can go far enough away and just burn your brain out. Right, exactly. I always say that about the Flash, too. I mean, the, the Flash is a character that's impossible to write logically because his powers, he, he's just, he's crazy super fast. And before you even blink, he's defeated you. When you write The Flash, you have to just take a step back and work on the story versus working on the realism because it yeah. just doesn't work. Well, and as as Mike Bailey said when we recorded last week, every time they do that where Batman wins, they have to come up with some sort of plot contrivance as to why Superman is not at full power. 
<laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Just out of curiosity, were you covering Bronze Age comics or silver? Uh, or well, we, we did, you know, we, we call it our shameless obligatory coattail writing episode. Yes. Uh, and this was our Superman Batman one, but it actually extended two episodes because it went too long. Uh, <laughs> and we started with the 1952 origin of the Superman Batman team. Okay. And, and then we went from there to a Bronze Age World's Finest. And then from there to a 1990s Secret Origins book. And then this week we just recorded uh, two issues of the Superman Batman series. Oh, right. Okay. Gotcha. So, so we kind of covered from the 1950s to the present. And sort of along the same lines, the, the real reason Rob can't be with us tonight, other than his parole officer wouldn't let him come out and play, is that he's actually recording our own coattail writing episode for Batman vs. Superman, and he's doing a uh, Power Records edition for us right now. Is that with Chris? Yeah. Cool. Mr. Chris Franklin, or Earth 2 Chris, as we call him as well. Then we get to possibly the hottest member of Squadron Supreme. That would be the Power Princess who is our equivalent of Wonder Woman. Now, when did she show up? I think she first appeared in the... Uh, in fact, let me try and see it. But I think she may have been in that issue 85. Oh, nope. that early on. No, okay. first appearance, Defenders 112. Oh, all right. Zarda. So she's a late addition to the squad. And I, I don't remember her having much personality other than being kind of haughty. Mm-hmm. And that if anybody didn't show her the proper respect, she just beat him down. Like, that's all I know about her personality. I remember her being very much a warrior. Very much the warrior Amazon sort of character, yeah. She she comes from a place called, not surprisingly, Utopia Island, <laughs> which is, you know, a, a perfect society kind of thing. But it, interesting, I like how they wove this into the Marvel Universe. They had been experimented upon by the Kree, so that was kind of neat that they actually tie them in there. And, of course, just like uh, Steve Trevor, she encounters a, a, you know, a crashed guy from the man's world. She helps him nurse him back to health during World War II, and then she ends up helping him get back to, you know, the States, and she, eventually she ends up marrying him. So, I mean, very, very much like Steve Trevor. Mm-hmm. Now, she, there's something about her I always thought was really hot, which actually, you know, now that I think about it, I really should read the Straczynski issues of Supreme Power, because if I understand right, there's an old issue where she's just running around naked the whole time, which, uh, oh, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah, that's Gary, true. I forgot about that. <laughs> Gary Frank Arts, uh, if I remember right, so I'm, I'm on board with that, sure. <laughs> yeah, that was an old, a, a, a mature book. So they they show whatever they feel like showing in that one. Bless those souls for that. Gotta love them. <laughs> Does she have a lasso? Looking here. Superhuman strength, superhuman speed, stamina, durability, agility, reflexes, flight. Okay, so she's able to psionically fly. Inge- uh, longevity, telepathic resistance. Looks like she had a shield. Says oh, she, she, she could throw a shield in a similar manner to Captain America. But given her superior strength, its edges are able to slice through metal. Okay. You know, I really feel bad. Paul and I are doing this sort of on the fly, folks, so I haven't reread Squadron Supreme in a while, so forgive my gaps in my knowledge. Some of you are probably listening to this screaming at your, you know, Zonophones or your iPods or your Zooms, or whatever, all the different things that we're missing, but, well, we got off our button recorded this and you didn't, so there. There you go. And, you know, again, it's important to mention Power Princess, smoking hot. So, Wonder Woman or Power Princess, who's hotter? Uh, I still gotta go Wonder Woman. Yeah? You think so? You know why? Because I'm picturing Wonder Woman as drawn by George Perez. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I, I'm picturing uh, Wonder Woman drawn by Terry Dodson, which is who my action figure on my shelf is drawn is based on. So that's that. I probably have to give the nod to that. Although Power Princess, there's something about her though. I don't know what it is. Maybe just the toga sort of thing she wears. She gets my attention. I'm not complaining about either. <laughs> I remember. Um, do you remember the comic Exiles? Yes. 
she actually joined the team for a while. For a long time, it was just like sliders. They'd go to a random universe every couple issues or whatever. Yeah. But towards the end, they started going to known universes. Like they went to the 2099 universe and they went to the Squadron Supreme universe and they went to, you know, all these uh, new universe type stuff. And they ended up on a Squadron Supreme venture. And at the end of it, Zarda, Power Princess, went with them and became a regular member of the team. Her dominating attribute in that, though, was anger as well. <laughs> but that was fun seeing her on the team. And she had the, the helmet. Because for a long time, she wore this almost Cree-like helmet. By the time we get to the Gruenwald miniseries, she had changed a more of a, a, a much more Wonder Woman look. But the helmet was kind of a cool look and made her look very, you know, very warrior-like. Then the uh, the most unfortunately named analog, which is the Flash's analog, which is the Wizard. <laughs> now, there's a, isn't there a long history with that name at Marvel? Well, you had the Wizard. I'm trying to remember what his first name was. Or was it Frank something? I know I can't remember. <laughs> but yeah, okay. He was a Golden Age hero. Now, was he a legit Golden Age hero yes. or a retro one that Roy created? No, he was he was legit. Around, uh, I don't I don't think he had I don't think he had all that many appearances. Okay. But he was around in the 1940s, resurrected in Giant Size Avengers number one. Mm. And at the time, he was thought to be the, the father of Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Oh, gee, I remember some of that now. That's right. So when they used the wizard for the Squadron Sinister, I wonder if they were intentionally trying to, you know, uh, imply this was the alternate version of him, or they just liked the name, or I wonder where... Or if the they were trying to keep their trademark. Oh, Possibly. could very well have been that. I... I, I I hate the fact that that's got to be a thought when you look at some of these books, but every once in a while you see something that's done clearly just to save, you know, preserve trademarks. Well, the name DC. Captain Marvel has been used over and over again for reasons of that nature. And DC finally gave up on it. They, they finally surrendered and letting Marvel have it, and they use the word name Shazam now. Yeah, I preferred. I liked it better when they were putting up a fight. Me too. So, uh, Wizard here it was Stanley Stewart. And uh, according to the Wikipedia entries, he was an avid runner, a mail carrier, and a devoted family man. So he passes through a strange glowing fog bank, which then gives him his powers. <laughs> very very generic, very Silver age sort of origin. I love it because they, they don't explain the fog bank. It, bank. it just happens, and there you go. He's got powers. He's off and running. Yeah. Literally. It's almost a little bit like Jay Garrick's breathing heavy water fumes when he got his powers. <laughs> and and Wizard actually, what I believe he was recently, they had renamed him at some point. Probably the smartest thing they could do. Uh, <laughs> did he become like the speed freak or something like that? That sounds familiar. I saw that name as I was doing some quick research before we recorded. And I think he was ultimately in that, that recent miniseries that they had of the superior foes of Spider-Man. I think he was in that. Oh, really? Interesting. The, the evil version. I do know there's a new Squadron Supreme. I should mention this. There's a Squadron Supreme book on the shelf nowadays, guys. They've taken an interesting post-Seeker Wars approach where each member of the Squadron Supreme is from a parallel world. They're not all from the same Earth. They're like, you know, one's from this Squadron Supreme version, this is one from a Squadron Sinister version, and this one's from a different version, and things like that. I don't know, remember what analog they have for the Wizard in it right now, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they must have someone that, you know, fits that speed character mold. He's a speed demon. Is that what it is? Okay. So, reading up on the Wizard, it doesn't sound like he was... I mean, he was fast, but not, like, crazy fast. This is that he could... He runs at great speeds, uh, normally prefers to travel a few hundred miles an hour, but in increase to supersonic if needed. So I guess he's pretty, that's actually pretty fast. Okay. Well, supersonic is, supersonic, we're talking the speed of sound. Yeah. Flash in DC can run, like, to the speed of light. True. So, you know, there, there's a huge difference. <laughs> well, so I, Wizard is more like a Quicksilver kind of character, yes. probably. And, and honestly, you're probably better off having a character that runs the speed of sound than the speed of light, because it's just, again, it gets ridiculous when you have a character that's that fast. I, I think it does become harder to write. Yeah, absolutely. 
Dr. Spectrum, we mentioned him briefly with his power prism, is clearly a Green Lantern riff. Now, the original Dr. Spectrum, uh, as, as introduced, he fought solo against Iron Man in Iron Man around number 67 or so, give or take a couple issues. Okay. And he had a, an African surname, and he was an African-American, or I don't know about African-American, he was a black gentleman. He may have been totally African, I don't know. And that makes me wonder which Green Lantern he's supposed to be. Hmm. Is he John Stewart, since he was a black gentleman? Interesting. And, so, and this, this was the power prism and everything, right? Yeah. Because he's a, he's a white guy by the time they get to the Grunewald series, isn't he? Yes. And the character that had been Dr. Spectrum in that Iron Man series, I know they killed him off. Oh, okay. Well, it says here that the version of Dr. Spectrum I was reading about, at least, it was an astronaut named Joe Ledger, and he came across a, a Skrull spaceship, and he met the uh, another character we're going to talk about in just a moment, which is the uh, Martian Manhunter equivalent, who's a Skrull named Skymax. He met Skymax, and apparently Skymax gave him the power prism at that point. Now, again, I'm not sure whether this version, the Joe Ledger, is the first one or not. Are you on the Dr. Spectrum Spectrum Wikipedia page? Uh, well, I, I've copied the text so I could read it without the, okay, being on the page. Because I, I just went to that page, and it says the first villainous version is his actual identity was Kenji Obatu. Oh, wow. Okay. He's defeated as Iron Man crushes the power prism. A power soul Batu is arrested and deported back to his native Uganda. Okay. During a subsequent battle with the Thing, Black Panther, and Brother Voodoo, Obatu accidentally falls to his death. Hmm. Now, is he supposed to be a, from a parallel Earth as well, or was he from Earth 616? Put together by the Grandmaster, so I... Okay, so then he's one of the parallel ones. Okay, yeah. Right. And then it says, Unknown to Iron Man, Power Prism reforms and is found by a sanitation worker who brings it to Evangelist Billy Roberts, who, <laughs> after learning of the Prism's abilities, becomes the second Dr. Spectrum. Jeez, they must have been going through those guys like water in the old days then. At some point, he's a character named Alice Nugent. And yeah, you got to wonder if that's Alice Cooper and Ted Nugent's uh, combined. Love child, yeah. <laughs> well, they, uh, they've they got their own core then for the Spectrum characters, I suppose. I I always thought this character was interesting. Like, cause he plays a role in uh, another character's life. I guess, I, I guess I'll save it for later when we talk about Nuke. But he played a role in Nuke's life that it just, it, I really took to this character, I guess because I always loved Green Lantern growing up. I thought his power was really cool. You know, the whole wish fulfillment thing. Mm -hmm. Dr. Spectrum has pretty much that same idea, but with the whole color spectrum. And I just always thought it was a cool power and a cool character, at least in the Grunewald storyline. Right. Yeah, I agree. All right. The next one, well, this one's kind of lame. He's, his name is Amphibian. I'm not even sure who he's supposed to be in a Yeah, that's, that, really. he's like the lamest squadron member. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something like uh, he drinks water and he gets strong. It might be something like that, yeah, yeah. wish there was someone here who could actually take up for him, but oh well. Now, his secret identity for Amphibian is Kingsley Rice, okay? Now, if you step back from all that, the joke is right there in the name. Obviously, he, obviously, folks, he's a parallel of Aquaman. You might have heard of that character. He wears orange, talks to fish. And Aquaman is king of the seven seas, king of Atlantis. So this amphibian character has Kingsley in his name, and his last name is Rice. Arthur's, Arthur's last name is Curry. And this is all apparently very intentional, this gag with the name of calling him Kingsley Rice and Arthur Curry. I, I'm not busting over laughing hysterically, but it is kind of funny. <laughs> The interesting thing about him is basically eventually he gets fed up with the Squadron Supreme and just quits. He leaves the surface world altogether. Under the uh, Straczynski Squadron Supreme, Amphibian's a female character. Oh, that's true, it is. That's right. Okay. Then we have Skymax, the Skrullian Skymaster. Boy, they really I, and I, a long I way to come up with that name. I don't remember that character, and I cannot picture him. 
and I think there's a reason. He, I think when they created him, I don't know when he first appeared. However, I think he, in a lot of ways, he's sort of like Martian Manhunter. Because Martian Manhunter was on the Justice League, you know. He was a founding member of the Justice League. But not too long after the Justice League was formed, he just left. He was gone. And he's the Justice League member no one remembered. Until he came back, really in the in you know around 228 for the the war with Mars, and then the Just League Detroit and Just League International. Regardless of what people tell you about Martian Manhunter being the heart and soul of the Justice League, dude, he was barely even talked about for like 20 years, yeah. and most kids didn't even know who he was. And uh, I think that's kind of a joke they're playing with Skymax, which is he's a member of the team, but you know no one remembers him. They rarely see him, and uh, he's 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 in a lot of ways very much like Martian Manhunter, except he's a Skrull, which is a clever way to use the existing alien races in the, in the Marvel universe. Because you know John Jones is a shape changer, Skrull's a shape changer. Yeah, it works. It works pretty cleverly. Yeah, I'm just I did a quick image search, and he's basically a Skrull wearing a purple bodysuit, and it's got. Lines going across the chest, similar to John Jones's costume lines. He's just a scroll. Nothing, well, nothing, he, nothing that really stands out about him. Well, I was reading about him. Apparently, he is one of the last uh, super scrolls, and it is fair to say he also has a giant green cape with a giant collar. Fair to point that out, simply because John Jones also has a giant green co- cape with a giant collar as well. So he's very much a blatant ripoff, and I do love that he rarely appears. I just find that hysterical. <laughs> Then we get Golden Archer, uh, later changes his name to Black Archer, which uh, obviously is our, our Oliver Queen parallel. His name is Wyatt McDonald. And uh, let's see, he was an ordinary taxi driver until he decided the life of adventure was better for him. <laughs> now, when, so he, when they first introduced the Squadron Sinister, he or not when they first introduced him, this, the, that second appearance, the first one of the Squadron Supreme, he was in that group, I believe. Uh, but at that time, Clint Barton was not Hawkeye, he was Goliath. Okay. So they introduced him as Hawkeye. Oh, that's clever. Okay. Huh. Boy, Marvel's actually had a lot of different Hawkeyes over the years. Interesting. Uh, and actually, I kind of like that Hawkeye is the character that finally got Marvel to go for the legacy idea where you could have multiple people with the same hero name. Because like one thing, one thing I've always noticed about Marvel is they will only let one character run with the name at any given time. Like, they didn't let there be two Captain Americas running around. You know, when, when you had uh, Steve Rogers step down and someone else being Captain America, he became the captain. He wasn't yeah. also calling himself Captain America. And, and uh, it wasn't until it seemed like, for me at least, the Hawkeye ongoing series where you had him and the, um, Kate Bishop. Yes, when from, Kate, and, from uh, the Young Avengers. Yeah, it seemed like that was the first time they, they just let two people run around with the same name and uh, as a sort of a legacy character. And I thought, you know, it's about time because Marvel should do that. So I, I think it's cute here that uh, Golden Archer also was called Hawkeye at some point. Well, it's it's, course, it's somewhat of a lack of lack of respect for your readers that you don't think they'll be able to tell the difference. Well, that that argument also goes back to the par- parallel world thing. You know, DC when they when they did Crisis, you know, a lot of people said that. Well, even Marv Wolfman said it was too hard to understand all the parallel worlds. They didn't have faith in the reader that they could figure it out, and so they collapsed the worlds. And Marvel just recently collapsed all their parallel worlds. And I would assume there, you know, some of the same logic was it was a little too hard to understand. And you know what? Could the reader understand it? Yeah, probably. They you should give readers more credit than you do. Yeah, I think so. Now, Golden Archer, just like his parallel with Green Arrow, he had a, a relationship with the equivalent of Black Canary. Was it Lady Lark? Yes. And now let's jump ahead a bit to the Squadron Supreme miniseries because we should talk about this. He did something absolutely unforgivable in the Squadron Supreme miniseries. Do you remember what he did? I don't. I do not. Oh, really? Okay. Basically, in the Squadron Supreme miniseries, one of the things they had done, they had come up with this way to reform criminals. They came up with these machines which would change people's mental makeup. 
Like if someone had criminal tendencies, it would it would either block or wipe out the criminal tendencies. Well, when he and Lady Lark were uh, falling in love, she basically she during the story she broke up with him, oh, and he couldn't. Yeah. yeah, he couldn't handle that. So I'm, I'm sorry, he he proposed to her. That's what it was, and uh, she turned him down. And so he drugged her and used Tom Thumb's behavior modification device to reprogram her to be madly in love with him. He totally screwed with her brain. He went all identity crisis on her and it changed her mental makeup. It was a, now, it, thankfully they addressed it, you know, very strongly in the story. You know, he, he was out of the team. He left and all the, he changed himself to the black archer and all these different things happened. Wow. Just what a total dick move. Jumping into that story, it talks of, you know, they're basically giving you how that kind of technology just can't be allowed to exist. Right. Exactly. And it just leads to nothing, nothing positive. Quickly mention Lady Lark. We do what we already did. Obviously, the analog to Black Canary. She later went on to call herself Skylark. And apparently, and I don't remember Skylark. I really don't. But apparently, she, Skylark was also not only an analogy to Black Canary, but also Hawk Girl. I think I think her costume was more similar to Hawk Girl at that point. Okay, if you got to cover all the JLA, JLA members, it makes sense. You had Tom Thumb, who was the equivalent of Adam, and except he didn't sh- he didn't shrink and grow. He was just kind of a dwarf. Correct. Yes. He was interesting because like it's almost like he was a combination of the Golden Age and Silver Age Adam. He reminded me of Puck. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, just the, the he had the similar features, the same sort of you know dimensions, other than the beard and the hair. He was very similar to Puck, as uh, Paul just mentioned. He didn't shrink or anything. He just was a, a dwarf, but he was a scientific genius like Ray Palmer was, and uh, had some really they did some great stuff with him in the miniseries. And ultimately, very sad, he died of cancer, and uh, that was that was powerful when that happened. And his name is in his name being Tom Thumb. His real name is Thomas Thompson. So it's I mean he's not too far off his real name. <laughs> Parents had a sick sense of humor, I think. <laughs> Let's see, then moving on. Uh, Blue Eagle, which was the equivalent of Hawkman. I don't even remember this character. Yeah, he appeared first in the second appearance, which was Avengers 85. Uh, he was drawn very dramatically, like like he was kind of like a crazy version of Hawkman and Captain America. Like Captain America, but fanaticism, not patriotism. I'm, I'm flipping through the miniseries here, and I see him. I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember him now, but wow, it just leaves no impression on my memory at all. I'm looking at his pictures. I can see what you mean. It seems like he's, in most of his pictures, he's raging and smashing stuff up. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, unless we have anything more on him, I'm just going to move right past Yeah, him. I think we're, we're on the lesser members at this point. No, no uh, offense. Careful there, no sir. No offense to the one that's coming up. Right, well, uh, we, let's jump right to that. Nuke, lesser? Are you kidding me? This guy's the, the, the hallmark of the team. <laughs> I, think he, I think he hung out a lot with, what you call it? With what's his name? The uh, the Aquarian. Uh, the, oh. the Amphibian. <laughs> Amphibian, amphibian, and a nuke podcast. That could happen. That might just happen. So nuke, yes. Basically, you know, as the squadron sinister are you know, started in the '60s, as they continued to progress, as they added more members, they also came up with equivalents. So yes, when Firestorm was added to the team in 1979, uh, nuke was added to the team in I think 1981. So just a couple years later, as you would expect, he's you know a kid who a, a young kid. His name's Albert Gaines, and he's worked at a nuclear power plant. Apparently, apparently their country, their world's very different because he worked in Motor City in the state of Windota. I guess Michigan's called Windota or something like that on their planet. 
Anyway, he worked in a nuclear power plant, got exposed to radioactive waste, and developed atomic powers, of course. Now, there was no merging with a, with a brilliant scientist or anything like that, but you did get sort of a hot-headed, atomic-powered character running around with the Squadron Supreme. His initial costume was ridiculous-looking. Actually had an atomic explosion on his chest. It was, it was embarrassing. And then for the Gruenwald miniseries, they redesigned his costume to something that looks pretty cool, actually. Sadly, in the miniseries, and I, and I don't think we're spoiling anything in the miniseries. Well, we, I, I don't think it ruins the discussion in the miniseries by mentioning this, he actually dies. Turns out his body was leaking radiation, and he was living with his parents, and the radiation eventually caused his parents to die. And in his grief, he sort of reclused into himself, and then when Dr. Spectrum came to check on him, and this is where I was mentioning earlier the Dr. Spectrum character I liked, he came to check on Nuke, and Nuke lost it. He was going to go kill Tom Thumb, because Tom Thumb had been working on a cure for cancer and hadn't succeeded yet, and he was going to go kill him. Dr. Spectrum had to enclose him in a bubble, and Nuke actually suffocated. Very sad story. Bum me out to see Firestorm die. That's totally uncool. And I got to see it in the uh, Flash TV series also. <laughs> They're just out trying to torture you. They're, they're real good at killing firestorms. They sure are. Then uh, another character worth mentioning is Arcana, who later on went by the name Moonglow, which is Zatanna. They, the equivalent is Zatanna. And magic casting chick, smoking hot. Not not a lot to do in the series that I recall. No, I think she just kind of stood in the back as and was kind of eye candy. Hey, I I got no problem with that. <laughs> then you get into sort of some real peripheral. You mentioned peripheral characters. They they fought the Institute of Evil, which was an, a group of squadron foes who eventually get modified. Uh, their their brains get modified, as I mentioned earlier. And they become members of the squadron and just running. I'm just going to run through their names real quick. You get Ape X, who was based on Gorilla Grodd, but was female. You get Lamprey, which was based on the Parasite. You get the Shape, who was supposedly based on Plastic Man and Martian Manhunter, but I always thought of him more as based on uh, Elongated Man. I don't know. I, did you get a sense for which one you thought the Shape was based on? The way Shape was written was he was mentally challenged. Yeah. So I didn't really see him as based on any one character. I mean, he was a pliable character, but he was, you know, he, he really wasn't in a costume, if I remember. I think he was just had like a big bathing suit on, and that was it. Basically, yeah. And and he was kind of, you know, big and he had a bald head, and his neck would be like overly long because he was so flexible. Like, he didn't look like any one of the characters, so I, I just kind of saw him as just a, you know, Grunwald fooling around. I don't know. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really see him as a specific guy. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, Doctor Decibel, who was uh, a, I don't, re- I don't remember this guy at all, but apparently based on Sonar. You had Quagmire. They didn't actually. I, Quagmire actually stood out in my memory quite a bit because he was an interesting character, but he wasn't actually an analog for anybody that, that at least we know of. He did fight Doctor Spectrum though. And you get a few other characters. Nighthawk eventually puts together his own team, which is a little bit like the Batman and the Outsiders. A couple of analogs he had on his team was Redstone, who was supposed to be like Geoforce. Moonglow, who was supposed to be like Halo, and Mink, who was supposed to be like Catwoman. And he had a, a bunch of other characters on there as well. So that's where you get is uh, all your, your analogs. I'm sitting here right now looking at my Justice League action figures, seeing if there's anyone they didn't cover. Uh, I have, I have a, uh, the way I have a, these three shelves set up, sort of like the original Justice Leaguers on the top, then you get Satellite Era Justice Leaguers, and then you get Justice League International, which obviously wouldn't work in this guard because the, this regard, because Squadron Supreme was all before Justice League International, but I don't remember a Red Tornado, of no, no, I don't. And I like to think that's more of a statement on Red Tornado than Squadron Supreme. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! Red Tornado was data that nobody liked. <laughs> it's kind of how I always think of him. I used to like Red Tornado. Did you really? Yeah. You're, you're one of three people that I've met that like I, I always Tornado. saw him as kind of vision light. 
Yeah. Well, he, I mean, if you go back and read his stories, they really do come across in a lot of ways. And I mentioned data specifically from Star Trek Next Generation. He does sort of read like a, a, a like a data you don't really want to root for. It's kind of what it's like. I, like see, I, I always thought, thought of it more as a kind of a data who's a, kind of a sad sack. Uh, okay. Like kind of down on himself and, you yep. know, always, always a little depressed. Like, like, you know, come on, Red Tornado. Let's, we'll go get you some oil. You know? <laughs> Well, with good reason. He almost never saves the day. He gets blown up all the time. And uh, for a guy who's got you know an insane amount of power, he's not all that useful. Mm, I, well, don't know. I always felt sorry for him. What could I tell you? Squadron Supreme is better off without it. My name is Grundy. Born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular time. And then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough so it's better to just set it up oh, okay it, do, it really doesn't work well so i checked right. uh i checked my uh mm-hmm. call, my it definitely built built me for the hotel for all three of us join back to the bins every week for goodness solomon grundy hate voiceovers The Squadron Supreme miniseries that we keep talking about here. So let, let's let's get into this for just a minute here. So I'm, I'm I'm holding the trade in my hands. Let me get to the credits page here. All right, Mark Grunewald's the writer. Pencilers John Bushima, Bob Hall, inker Sam Della Rosa, John Beatty. There's a bunch of inkers and a bunch of other folks that worked on this as well. Twelve issue. I guess they call it, Marvel calls it limited series. Is that right? I, I think at the time they called it a maxi series. Oh, okay. Because they they, they, they started with DC term. They had started with the miniseries, you know, a couple couple of years earlier, and it was common for them to do, you know, three or four issue series. Yep. But at this point, I think a twelve issue series was pretty much, if it was done at all, it was very uncommon. Right. I mean, I can remember, you know, at that point, Crisis was twelve parts. Beyond that, I don't remember anything really doing that. I'm trying to find some of the covers here, but they didn't. Looks like they didn't reprint the covers in here. Because I, and the only reason I, where I was going with this, I just, I seem to recall. DC or Marvel specifically used the term limited series. Like I seem to recall that was a thing for them. Mm-hmm. That was their maybe, phraseology. Maybe that was. Maybe I'm mistaken. Well, I don't know. I mean, the nice uh, thing is if I'm wrong, the email will come to fire and water and I don't have to read it. That's true. Oh, God, dude, we forgot Secret Wars. Whoops. There's a there's a 12-issue miniseries that was very successful for Marvel before the Squadron Supreme. That is true. But that was tied directly into the Marvel Universe. This was kind of standalone. Yeah, and it was off to the side. That made it more significant to me because it was almost like they were really taking a chance with it. You know, Secret Wars, they knew it was going to be a big thing. They may they may not have known how big of a thing it was going to be, but they knew that they were going to, that they were going to sell books. Well, they, you know, it goes with all the marketing. I mean, hysterical to know that Marvel did all this research to find out that boys responded well to the word secret and war, and so they just made that the name of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Cracks me up. 
So, uh, all right, so the gist of the Squadron Supreme miniseries, it went, ran from September 85 to August 86. Essentially, it, it ta- as you mentioned, it, it, it follows the Defenders comic, and the Squadron Supreme are trying to sort of reassemble their world, which is, is, which is having trouble, and they decide that they have enough power to create a utopia on their world. They can take control of the government and, uh, and rehabilitation and d- develop a utopia, and they, they literally, as I said, take care of, take control of everything. And they develop these behavior modification machines we talked about, where they're turning criminals and wiping their memories and making them act good. And Nighthawk, who st- protests all of this, and he believes they shouldn't do this, and he ends up actually building, you know, leaving the team and building sort of a subversive team to kind of combat their efforts. Where this becomes even more, besides being a fantastic series, it becomes even more interesting when you compare it and contrast it against Kingdom Come. Now, have you read Kingdom Come? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And did you see the relationships between the two? So, I mean, somewhat. I definitely see it as kind of the, the end game and the war of the superheroes kind of thing. Uh, the war of superhero ideology. Yeah. And I think that's big. I, I always likened this story, uh, just, just to go off the topic for a moment. Sure. To, uh, Clockwork Orange. Oh, goodness. And if, if you remember Clockwork Orange, you know, you, they, they spent about half the movie developing what a, Terrible, what a terrible person Alex, who was Malcolm McDowell's character, was showing him to be basically an irredeemable person. Careful then, with that word, sir. Okay. Then he's eventually arrested and submits to mind controlling experimentation, which basically makes bad behavior repugnant to him, which would make him actually physically ill. And eventually, he goes from this character that that there's you know there there really is no good side to. To the one you're feeling sorry for, you know, just showing you how the misuse of this technology can be played with. And in, in this story, I mean, it's a similar thing in that you're you're changing people's mindset or people's ability to, to have free thought to make bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that. You just can't take away people's free will. And when, the way I like it is, there's, you know, there's always a price to be paid for these things. When when you make a mistake, sure, on a short short term level, you say, oh, look, see, everybody's happy or whatever. But then eventually it all comes back to, to explode on them. And it very and, much does in this. And, and I think, you know, that, that's a theme that you see very much in this and, and to some extent in Kingdom Come too. You know, Superman basically goes away because the world is not looking at things his way anymore. They've rejected his way of looking at things and they're trying to do things, you know, basically at all costs. It's, it's, you know, live it our way and we're, we're not going to, uh, hold back on how we, uh, how we take care of things and eventually it goes over the top and it ends up causing deaths and, and Superman has to come out of retirement to combat that. So, I mean, I definitely see parallels between all three stories. And as we were talking about before we started recording, uh, to some extent also with Watchmen in a, in a similar way. And I found that fascinating when you brought that up. Tell, tell the folks at home a little more what you were telling me about why, where you see the parallels here. Just, just from a story point of view, I think both Watchmen, well, I think Watchmen is hailed as being, you know, a breakdown of, of the superhero world showing, you know, deconstruction, I think. So deconstruction, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's hailed as being, you know, one of the, one of the, if not the seminal comic book right, stories ever. And I always kind of took some, some, took that to task a little bit. Cause first of all, I felt like Squadron Supreme did the, deconstruction of the superhero world first 
you know, it not not much. It didn't have much uh, of a of a head start on it. So they just may have about been, just about a year, probably. Yeah. Yeah, they may have been even being written simultaneously. For all I know, they could be two totally independent thoughts. But somehow, Squadron Supreme is swept under the carpet with that when a lot of the themes are the same. You know, as far as absolute power corrupting absolutely, and that's not certainly not an original thought for this series or any series. But it was done in that uh, that post uh, Armageddon type way here, uh, and you know, in a dystopian society that you kind of see in in Watchmen and you see in Kingdom Come. And I think this story is sold short from both of those because I think both of those are, are hailed as as you know all time classic works, and the one has kind of gotten forgotten a little bit. I think that's a very fair statement. I mean, I and and one of the things you said off the air was just that the fact that someone might prop up Squadron Supreme more than Watchmen is, is like, you know, heresy oh. in, in the comic book world. But I, I would agree with that statement. I, if I had to choose, if I had my two trade paperbacks right next to each other, and actually they are kind of on the shelf because S and W are pretty close together, if, if I had to choose between reading Watchmen or Squadron Supreme, I'd pick Squadron Supreme every time. It's a more enjoyable read. It's... It, well, it's certainly not as dense. And, and, some, and in some ways it's not as pretentious. You know? And it's... And I kind of enjoy the... The flow of the story here, and I don't know whether maybe it's because of my familiarity with the Justice League characters versus the Charlton characters, which is what Watchmen's based on. But um, as far as the deconstructive side of it, I I enjoy Squadron Supreme a lot better. And I'm trying to think here, and you know, if you take Ozymandias out of Watchmen, because eh, he's the one who really does the completely irredeemable actions in that. What's your use of that word? I know. <laughs> I was trying to say some other word that I'm apparently not smart enough to come up with because I don't know me them them words too good. Anyway, whereas. In Squadron Supreme, the whole team is really doing horrible actions, allowing this behavior modification to go on. So in some ways, the Squadron Supreme team even does worse things than what was going on in Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you also have the comedian doing horrible things out there true, as well. True, just, they're just not They're not acting that. in unison. Yeah, I, I forgot about the comedian. Very good point. Hmm. Well, if we, if we go back to the original point of Squadron Supreme versus Kingdom Come, um, there's actually a lot of articles out there you can read where they do sort of compare them almost beat for beat because I mean, they're both Justice League analog teams. Uh, in both cases, they make these public statements about how the relationship between the superhuman and the regular human is going to change. And this is, uh, as far as Kingdom Come goes, this is after Superman comes back. Superman says it's now the superhero's responsibility to police the other super superpowered people. We're going to do this, and they sort of take the humans out of the equation. Same thing here with Supreme uh, Squadron Supreme, where they take over the government. But in, in Squadron Supreme, like you say, they take over the government. Mm-hmm. They're taking over the world effectively. Yes. In Kingdom Come, Superman is looking to police the superpowers. Yeah, he, he, you know, and I think that's where Superman actually comes out of retirement because he's bothered by the regular citizenry being in jeopardy because of the superpowers. Mm-hmm. Whereas, the, you know, the, in Squadron Supreme, they, they, they're worried about anyone being hurt by any bad behavior. Yeah. Uh, it's, they're taking care of the supervillains first, but it's, it's becoming one of those, you know, no, no bad behavior will be tolerated societies. And, and this article I'm looking at, I'm referencing, it's not, it, it, I, it's, I copied this like 15 years ago to my hard drive for some reason. I'm so glad I did. It's a great comparison. And it mentions kind of what you're saying. And actually they put it in, in those words. They basically say the crisis of ethics is the point they refer to. And they say in Squadron Supreme, the crisis of ethics happens after they go down this path where, you know, with the brain modification, whereas the Justice League, 
start taking this action at, at the crisis of ethics, which is where the superhumans uh, are running rampant. And Superman says, it's time for us to take care of our own. So you make a very good distinction there. That's a very good point. Uh, Superman's side is a little more acceptable. It's not a world power controlling thing. It is more of a, you know, we're going to take care of our own. There's a problem here. Well, And, and I, f- I find the Squadron Supreme one to be slightly more thought-provoking for that reason. In, in, in Kingdom Come, it's Superman being compelled into action by what he sees as Again, you know, people, superpowered beings who are being irresponsible with their superpowers. In Squadron Supreme, they just decide they're going to make the world a perfect place because they know better than everyone else. Yeah. Well, in both cases, though, it's the, the, the crux of it is using force to compel people to behave properly. Yes. So, so whether Superman, even though his is a little more altruistic, they're still using force in locking these people up in jail simply if they just don't agree with Superman's ethics. I mean, there, it gets to the point where they say, you know, do, will you comply with Superman's rules? No, they lock him up. When you consider great comic book villains, Lex Luthor and say, and Dr. Doom, just to use two for example, I'm sure we can come up with many others. I think, uh, Professor Allen would take umbrage with you calling Dr. Doom a villain, but okay, anyway. We'll, do, we'll just, we'll put villains in quotation marks. Okay, fair enough. But both of them are compelled to rule the world, not because they want to hurt anybody, but because they know how to rule it better than anybody else does. Sort of like Donald Trump. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to get some hate mail. <laughs> but, you know what I'm saying? And and that, in effect, is what the Squadron Supreme are doing here. They want to rule the world because they know better. That's true. And that's yeah. that's where they're misguided. And that's where where they always show the distinction on, you know, if you do show Dr. Doom as a villain, and again, apologies, Alan, it's because he oversteps his bounds, because he feels he has this supreme right to dictate how the world is is run because he knows better than any, everybody else mm-hmm. and that's that's just unacceptable to everybody <laughs> except for alan right <laughs> who, who will gladly welcome our new uh latvarian dictator i was gonna say yeah, be careful be careful <laughs> i don't want to offend him in case doom does take over uh alan you know alan's gonna be in a position of power so you know you don't want to offend him so a few other, running through just a few other more peripheral, or not, or superficial comparisons, if you will, it's in sort of almost surprising, you know, in Kingdom Come, Batman leads the resistance against the Superman and his people. In Squadron Supreme, Nighthawk leads a resistance against the Squadron Supreme. You know, Luther and both, uh, Emil Burbank, which is the Squadron Supreme version of him, you know, both play important roles in the story. Green Arrow, and Golden Archer both end up on the uh, Batman Nighthawk side of the Resistance movement. And according to this, I think both it says both of them die in the final battle in, in that. I don't remember that piece of it, but I believe yeah, it. Yeah, I do, I do kind of remember that. Uh, in both of these stories, Wonder Woman and Superman and Power Princess and Hyperion become an item. <laughs> Just sort of a funny uh, little bit of it, Alex Ross did the covers for both trade paperbacks. <laughs> oh, I didn't I didn't realize he did the Squadron Supreme cover. Yeah, the the trade I have right now has an Alex Ross cover on it. That's the one with the light blue background? Yep, mm. the painted. Yeah, I knew it was a painted cover. For some reason, I did not realize it was Alex Ross. Yep. Well, Alex Ross did the entire Kingdom Come. Right, obviously, which is it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of work. Now that was uh that was the Mark Wade one. Yep, Mark Wade and uh Mark Wade and Alex Ross to Kingdom Come, and uh, Mark Grunwald, and then yeah, Bob Hall and John Beatty were the primary artists in Squadron Supreme at least. Those are some of the the major beats that uh sort of fit. I mean, the, the Gulag and the Utopia program have a lot of parallels. The giant confrontation at the end. So it's a, you got to wonder uh how much of this 
comparison was uh, accidental. I mean, what, how how much was Mark Wade Mark Wade influenced by Squadron Supreme when he wrote Kingdom Come? I got to think whether it was conscious or not conscious. I think he had to been influenced a lot because they're just if you read the two back to back, especially, uh, and they're both good reads. They both deserve being read, and they both you're not going to feel ripped off just because the parallels. But it's just sort of astonishing just how much you'll see when you read them together. Yeah, that's the one one point to make just because we've discussed it is as far as Kingdom Come and Watchmen go, I think they're both wonderful books. Don't get that's me wrong. I heard you say Watchmen sucked. That's what you were saying a minute ago, I, right? I just think they're both presented as being – well, I, I actually – if I'm going to rank them as far as my own personal enjoyment, I'm going Squadron Supreme number one, Kingdom Come number two, and Watchmen number three. And I think that's where I hit the point of heresy because I think people just want to say Watchmen is unparalleled, the greatest comic book ever written. I agree with your order completely that you came up with. Now, an argument could be made as far as, you know, again, getting to the smart people and they sit down and look at them as works of literature and start looking at themes and the writing style and the language and the prose. Could Watchmen be a superior piece? Quite possibly. I think but- Watchmen, if, if, when, when you look at Watchmen very closely, uh, there's a lot of symbolism in the artwork too. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was apparently laid out specifically by Alan Moore and, and I think it's Dave Gibbons did the artwork. Yes. And I think, I think Alan Moore specifically gave directions like I want this here and this here and this here. So you do have to give Alan Moore a lot of credit for how complexly or with the complexity with which he put together his story. It, it, it is a, you know, it's a terrific piece of writing. But again, to me, it's just not the end all be all that it's presented as. Now, I will say this. If you're a Watchmen fan, go to Books a Million. If you guys have like a Books a Million bookstore where you are and, or any other big box book selling company and go look on their like clearance aisle, there's a good chance you're going to find this giant oversized hardcover called Watching the Watchmen, which is by Dave Gibbons. I got this thing for $5. It normally retails for $40. And so they're just, you know, they, they ordered a bunch when the movie came out, and then they were trying to clear them out. And, I, yeah, I still got the sticker on it. Yeah, Books a Million, $4.97. It is gorgeous. It is an amazing uh, book. It's got a million images from Dave Gibbons as he worked on the book, and it's got some scripts from Alan Moore in it, and it's just what an incredible piece. So if you love Watchmen, and as, as Paul said, it is an amazing book, uh, definitely check this one out. It's pretty cool. All right, well... Paul, have we beat this subject to death? We can probably find a bunch more stuff to talk about, but I think we've kind of beat it to the, to death that I'm going to – I don't want to be the second guy to fall asleep during a show that you're on. <laughs> well, I want to close this out by just talking about one of the, the fun things. We talk about Squadron Supreme and Justice League and the comparisons. There's a wonderful, wonderful site called Super Team Family, The Lost Issues. The website is braveinthebolddlost.blogspot.com. Uh, it's this guy named Ross, and he puts together these wonderful fake covers every single day. His subtitle is The Greatest Team-Ups That Never Happened But Should Have. Uh, I actually am a huge fan of these things. Not only do I enjoy his website every day, I actually uh, support him on Patreon. Uh, I give him money every month just because I, I think it's a wonderful endeavor, and I just hope he keeps doing it forever. One that he posted at the time of this recording just a couple days ago is his 1,426th entry. That's how many of these things he does. And he, he'll basically, it's usually Marvel and DC characters that he pairs up together. Sometimes he'll get like Hellboy or different things like that. It's, and, he'll, and he'll make a new cover. And he has, he comes up with the greatest cover copy that, you know, he, the guy should be writing, you know, comic books or at least the covers for comics because he's really good at it. But just this week, at least the time of this recording, he did two super fun ones, which are Justice League versus Squadron Supreme. So go out to the website again, Super Team Family, look in March or just go to the, um, 
the tags, because they have all these tags, and type in Squadron Supreme, and you'll find he's got these two of Justice League Squadron Supreme. One is a very classic one where Hyperion's just sucking Superman, and in the background you see Dr. Spectrum fighting Green Lantern and Flash fighting Wizard. That's, and that's the uh, cover of Defenders number 13. Is it really? Okay. That's, well, I that's, what the ju- so that Hyperion was fighting the Hulk. Uh, Dr. Spectrum was fighting Dr. Strange, and the Wizard was fighting Submariner. Okay. Well, if I look here, it looks like the Flash is, I think, from Crisis, uh, a Perez one. Green Lantern could be anybody. He's real small in the background. The Superman, I don't recognize who did the art on that no, one. Because a lot of times you can sort of, you can piece it together, but it's his last team standing, and Hyperion's yelling, you so-called heroes had your chance to keep Earth safe, and you blew it. It's time to let a real supergroup take over. I can, I can exactly. tell you that the uh, the Squadron Supreme part of that cover is done by Gil Kane. Oh, that's fantastic. Because that's, again, yeah. it's Defenders number 13. The Green Lantern might be a Gil Kane as well. I can't quite tell in the background. But uh, that's, I mean, it's just the cover copy is exactly the kind of stuff you would read. The next one, which was Super Team Family um, on March 9th, you've got Squadron Supreme in the background, which looks like those are all maybe the Marvel Universe poses. Uh, looks like may have been pieced together because they look very much like the nuke picture back there is most definitely the Marvel Universe pose. Uh, yeah, these are all yeah these are all from Marvel Universe, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, and and the Justice League one is from one of the issues I think in the one sixties one seventies where the Justice League's all walking towards the camera with their heads hung low and Mara's on the cover with them. But in this case, you see basically all these reporters sort of like cheering the Squadron Supreme as the Justice League walks away. And it says, uh, some guy's yelling at the Justice League, beat it, you bums, who needs you? As clearly the Squadron Supreme has become the premier heroes. That's, that's a cover of the Justice League. I couldn't tell you exactly when it is, I, but I, I know I've seen it in, in, the, in the Justice League issue. I'm trying to think of who was standing on the steps in the background in the original picture. Was Is this the one where... Because I, I own every Justice League, or at least a reprint, one or the other, either a reprint or original of all the Justice League books. Is this the one where their minds got switched into, like, construction workers and... Oh, it might be. Yeah, and, like, in the backgrounds, like, the regular-looking people or something? I, I don't I don't remember exactly. It's been so many years since I saw this. And Rob Kelly's yelling at his iPod at this point because I'm sure he knows exactly what it is. But anyway, there's super fun covers, and it's great to see the Justice League side-by-side with Squadron Supreme. You know, with all the crossovers Marvel and DC have done over the years, that would have been fun to see, the Squadron Supreme versus Justice League. That would have been great. Now, uh, Champions of uh, Agnor and Avengers, I don't think anyone's clamoring to see that. But uh, Squadron Supreme and Justice League would have been a great one. And if you keep scrolling down on, on Ross's website, you will find he's got like a Dr. Spectrum joins the Green Lantern Corps. Uh, he does have another Justice League and Squad- Squadron Supreme entry where it's, it's again, it's a, it's a George Perez cover. It's in the 180s, I believe, or 190s. It's the one where the, the Justice League's sort of being lit by candlelight and someone's holding a bunch of tarot cards in front of them. And uh, in this case, the tarot cards have been replaced with Squadron Supreme members. Again, the Marvel Universe photos. And it says, for the Justice League to live, their counterparts must die. The tarot of terror. <laughs> and, uh, great stuff. There's a Superman Hyperion one. There's a Batman and the Squadron Supreme, as in, like, you know, Batman and the Outsiders kind of style. That's ah, so much fun. Love this stuff. But, folks, uh, Paul, why don't you tell the folks at home, I know we said it at the top of the show, why don't you tell them where they can, you can, they can find you on the interwebs on a regular basis? So you can find me on the Two True Freaks Network. I am a regular co-host of Back to the Bins, where we look at old random comics and have fun tangenting as much as possible. <laughs> and I am also a co-host of Listen to the Prophets, where we've started with the first ever pilot episode of uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and we're working through the entire series. What season are you guys on uh, now? We're in, we just started season three. Okay. 
Is that the uh, the circle, or was that the beginning of season two? That was the beginning of season two. This was uh, the search, I believe, was the first. Uh, okay. Arc. All right. so we're starting to see the Dominion now, and uh, it's getting—it's actually ramping up and getting pretty exciting on the show. Was, was it? When did Worf join? Was it season season four? four? Season season four. Okay, that's when all the war stuff starts. Yeah. Okay, I remember now. Yep. Well, very cool, Paul. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute delight having you here. And I love the Squadron Supreme, and it's very nice to be able to talk with someone about it who's got as much of a passion, actually more uh, knowledge, certainly, than I do about it. And uh, it's been great. I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun, and I'm glad we came up with a topic that we could have fun talking yeah. about. And you know what? If all goes well, I think we'll hear you on this show again sometime soon. That's a possibility. It might happen. It might just happen if it all works out. If I can just get that bus to run over Rob. <laughs> All right, folks, until next time, uh, you can find my, me at firestormfan.com. You can find Rob at aquamanshrine.net. You can find both of us on uh, the Facebooks and the Twitters under those same handles. You can also find Rob under Film and Water Pod. But more importantly, you can find us as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We're on Twitter as FW Podcasts. That's plural. That's the handle. You can also use the hashtag FW Podcast as well. You can find us on Facebook with the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We are everywhere you want to be, folks. So... Please check out the wonderful family shows out there. And uh, I guess with that, until next time, fan the flame, ride the wave. So long. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. They stand for truth and justice. A land in there, Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah. Your charm alone is not going to destroy the other two robots, Hyperion. Stay focused on the mission at hand. There's focus, Nighthawk. And then there's this. Well done, Zardoz. But behold, true power. Hey, Dr. Spectrum, I got your true power right here. Day's work for the Squadron Supreme, Earth's mightiest heroes. <laughs> <laughs>